Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Jennifer Brick. Jennifer is world-renowned as being your new career bestie. She started her career in software training. She grew her career through technical industry, L&D, professional services, and client services. She's the CEO and founder of Copdeca Solutions. The company aims to help passionate corporate professionals succeed at work. She is author of Career Grow Up, the host of the Top Career Success channel on YouTube, where I first met Jennifer virtually. It's great. I think there's like 275 videos out there. She returned to her roots as a trainer and speaker. Jennifer's advice has been featured on Fast Company, Business Insider, Newsweek, and many, many more. Jennifer, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you today. Jennifer, I usually ask people to go ahead and start out, tell us about our journey and our walkabout, but you literally had a three-year walkabout to try and find your authentic <laughs> self and really what you want to do in your career and to move forward. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I feel, I mean, I feel like a large portion of my career was a career walkabout. So originally when I went to university, my intention was to go to law school and become a criminal defense lawyer. So I did a degree in criminology, was I did the LSAT, put in my law school applications, and then realized I don't actually want to be a lawyer. <laughs> so I had this degree, but now no idea of what to do. So I ended up kind of sampling a bunch of different careers. I worked in recruiting, I worked in sales, and then I found a home in training. And I've been a trainer of multiple kinds, client training, partner training, internal team development, and all those sorts of things. And it it's interesting how like all of these different like kind of things that we do in our careers end up coming together, which I could probably talk for hours about. Um, but approaching my career with curiosity and openness kind of set me on this path that got me into this unique position where I've been in so many different roles. And once I kind of found my home, I ended up having a really accelerated career trajectory based on all of the early kind of ambiguous experience that I had. Um, but then it, it did get me here to this point where I always, even early in my career, once I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, I always knew that I wanted to end up with my own company. I thought it would be as a consultant, kind of doing more project management level stuff, business analysis. Um, but then I for years, I was like, well, I just want to learn how to run my own company on someone else's dime because like, why would I want to figure it out on mine? Right. And then I realized I got to that stage in my career where I really felt like the way, the colloquial way I put it, and people don't always like when I say it this way, I worked in the tech industry and I just got really tired of making money for rich white dudes. And I was like, it's time for me to go and create something for myself. 
Um, and that's what inspired me to create like, and I also coincided with one of the things that I did as I was rising through leadership was I really loved paying it back. Cause as I figured something out, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish someone had told me this. (laughs) So I was always trying to pay it back with my team, developing internal training and mentoring programs for people that were earlier in their careers. I was like, this is what I want to do. But I want to do it not fixed within, you know, a startup or even a midsize or even a big company. I really wanted to kind of do it for the masses. So that's what brought me into starting my own company kind of as an exit point slash entry point to this next step. One of the things that we're finding today is there's frustrations with the employer who have high churn because they're saying we're not hiring the right people. And then you're having people going to jobs like, wait, this is not what I bought into. It's not you know, it's not what was written on paper. The job description wasn't what it said. And then maybe it's very toxic. So when do I stay? When do I bail? When do I do a lot of praying? Always. But <laughs> yeah. how should we navigate that as an individual? And then how would you advise companies to be more fair with the candidates? Let me say it that way. Just because I had a CEO who said, let's be clear, we have a high churn rate just because we keep hiring the wrong people and mm-hmm. wasn't addressing the internal culture issue. Yeah, no, it's if there's a high turn rate, it's a company issue. It is not an individual unless the leadership is so in, like to me. So at a basic level, it could be that they just don't understand how to spec out the requirement. So they don't fully know how to run their business. So they keep on hiring the wrong person because they don't know what they actually need to be hiring for. So there's an expectations versus reality where they're miscommunicating what their actual needs are. And it's because they don't understand what their needs are. But even if if that's the case, it's still a leadership issue. So if there is a high turn rate, that that that's a moment where people need to look in the mirror and evaluate, okay, what is causing us to make the mistake in hiring again and again and again versus no one wants to work, everyone is lazy, which is, I know, kind of common discourse that's out there, especially as kind of, you know, as over the last few years, we've gone through the great resignation. We have quiet quitting. We have quiet firing. We have all of these things going on that have always existed, but now they have terms. And I think that what people need to step back and realize is that none of this phenomenon is new, but I think what has been amplified is the way that I put it is that a lot of people, their BS tolerance has gone down to zero, especially with all of the stressors that have gone on, kind of the craziness in the economy, craziness in the world over the last few years. They don't want to tolerate a bunch of stuff. So I think when it comes to as an individual in the seat, is this the right job for me? Is this the right environment for me? There's, I could probably rattle off 200 like different indicators of a toxic work environment for an individual. Actually, you'll like this. A, a few weeks ago, I was served a Forbes article that asserted that 70% of workplaces are toxic. Now, what would you think when you saw that headline? What would you do? I, I, well, I would think it's understated. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. But I, I was like, I'm, I was curious. So I clicked into it. Cause I was like, I also like to see the data behind mm-hmm. this. So this is a clear number being communicated. And I was looking for peer review research. Set. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know, like, did they ask 10 people? Was this an internet survey? Is this academically reviewed? Like what was the context who was asked? 
but none of it was just someone like kind of stated a number as though it was a known fact. But the thing that they did cite was that there was this list of 10 different things that could occur in a workplace. And they're like things that would be annoyances kind of at best to toxic at worst. And the thing is, the the, the criteria said that if the answer to any one of these things is yes, then the work environment is toxic. But I don't completely agree with that because first of all, there's more than 10. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I can off the top of my head, I can rile 50 for you if you want the entertainment. But what ultimately makes a workplace toxic to an individual is individual circumstances. So how are you being treated? Are you being respected? Are you being given opportunities? Are you being heard? And there can be, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily the workplace, it's our past experiences that are being triggered. So like, if I feel like I've always been bullied, which I was bullied growing up, I'm probably going to be more sensitive to any perceived like mistreatment, right? And it's not, to in, I'm not saying this to invalidate anyone's experience, but we are going to be more observant. And this is one reason I also see a lot of people that have been in a toxic workplace ending up in multiple toxic workplaces, first because they don't know how to break the pattern, but also just because your brain does change because of the circumstances and it's now detecting danger everywhere, even where danger might not exist if you hadn't have had that past experience. So there could be a lot of things, but I think ultimately a toxic workplace, the signals that it comes down to is, do you have autonomy? Do you have trust? And do you have respect? Those three things without autonomy, a workplace is going to be toxic for most individuals. Having and autonomy means different things to different people. So there's no, if your boss is this, then this is that. No, again, we're individuals. So I don't want to put a blanket statement, but autonomy for all adults really important thing. Trust, because if people don't trust you, you don't trust others and you won't, you'll stop trusting yourself. And that's a very dangerous road to go down. And then respect and just having, you know, physical safety, psychological safety, emotional safety, and having some level of support to do the job that you do so well. And to know that your work is going to pay off, whether it's, you know, some level of job stability, whether it's getting a promotion, whether it's having recognition, whatever it is that you're working towards. Those are the three things that I encourage people to really focus on to determine, am I in a good spot in my career or do I need to start plotting my escape? Yeah, I totally agree with you on that, especially plotting your escape. I've had times where I've, I've gone into jobs and jumped out very quickly and my peers have too. It's been like, you didn't even announce that I'm here for six weeks. I came to get with my boss. My boss says he doesn't have time or she doesn't have time to read my emails or get with me to yeah. explain what's going on because they're hiring ahead of the curve. I think that's very dangerous as well, too. What what do you yeah. see along those lines? I hear that a lot. Or they use job descriptions because they grabbed from the internet and not saying specifically what you're going to be doing. <laughs> yeah. So I think in terms of like hiring ahead of the curve, that was the big issue in the tech industry over the last few years because VC money was being given out like hand, like candy. So they had the ability. I saw someone made a remark about uh, one of the big tech companies essentially like just collecting workers like dolls. And they're like, I was hired to serve no purpose other than they just wanted to hire me so no one else could. <laughs> Which is such a weird phenomenon. And I know I don't think that's good for from an employer's perspective, for an employee engagement, retention, employer branding, but also for an individual. Like we have jobs to get paid. 
let's not mince any words about that, even that if that's not a primary motivator, it is a motivator. Otherwise, you would be volunteering or watching Netflix on the couch, eating ice cream, which is what I would personally be doing if I didn't need to work to make money. Um, so we need to, I think, right now, the economy is forcing that hand and change for a lot of VC dependent companies or and you know, as the markets do what they do. I think that in the near term, we're probably going to see less of this. But also in terms of hiring and, and specking out, I think that there really needs to be what does the business need right now? And what are they going to need six to 12 months from now? Because I think sometimes managers are they they spot that they have a need. And one thing I, and I'm curious to see, to hear from you if you've ever had this experience is that there's a lot of budget hiring that can happen with companies of like, I need this person, I need this role, and I'm just going to find the least expensive person, which is going to be an inexperienced person who doesn't fully know how to do the job, but then they don't have any of the bandwidth or ability to actually train the person. So it goes back to that original issue of like, we keep on hiring the wrong person. It's like, yes, you hired the wrong person. You hired the person without the experience you need to do the job. So you got to pay more to get the, the person who can do the job, right? Like, is that something that you've ever experienced or witnessed? Yeah, I have. And I, you know, I recently was was helping a startup that had about 600 people. And then when I was looking at security, governance, compliance, and help desk, they had like, I don't know, 32, 35 people. And I said, it is not a butts in the seat issue. It's a, it's a process and improvement issue. And that you're hiring people who are very inexperienced. If you pay more money and get people experienced, we know how to augment processes and procedure things along those lines. It's not a button seats, but if you look at hyper growth, ooh, we're growing this many people. And I think that's where you've seen the contraction. Yeah. Very quickly, because you're like, I don't need five people to do that. Then I'm not being very good fiduciary with my budget that could be used to be doing other stuff or paying yeah. the more skilled talent the yeah. money that they deserve to be there. So that's the one thing I see too, where you get people who think it's a butts in the seat issue versus it's mm-hmm. it's a process improvement. And like you said, it's it's experience issue. That yeah. leads me to ask you about when I, I, I hate the word transparency anymore because I don't think transparency <laughs> being transparent. I don't like where people say, ooh, it's psychologically safe anymore to ask questions. And then you go ahead and you try to work with human resources to resolve these issues. And then pretty soon, let's find out you or other people are on the blacklist very quickly because transparency or psychological safety was really for us to go ahead and to get that list together. And I know you talk about this a lot. Is is HR friend or foe and what should you share? What shouldn't you share? Can you give us some wisdom along those lines? Because it's tough right now. How long do we have? Because I really feel like this could be a long rant for me. Um, so I I was like peripheral in the HR world, and I'm very close with a lot of HR leaders. And I think HR is a very important skill. But we do need to go back to the history of HR to understand its role in business and the context in which it serves. So HR first emerged as a business function, as a function to keep unions at bay. So this is what it is grounded in. Now, I know that it has evolved past that. (laughs) And I know that most people that go into HR are there because they want to help people. They want to have positive impacts on culture. Um, They're going in for good reasons. But ultimately, HR is there in order to protect the company. And they are still existing and functioning at the at the will of the executive team. They still have a boss that they are answering to. So really HR 
I've seen so many times where they have the best intentions and they really want to be there and they really want to address issues and to create those safe spaces and to enable open discourse and all of those things. But it still matters what culture the leadership at the top is setting. Because if leadership doesn't truly want the level of transparency that the people on the lower rungs that are building the company want to have, that's going to create conflict and tension. Um, I also think that this is where we can start to perceive a lot of lip service. Like I've worked with companies that say that they're all about transparency, but then every single person I speak to will say that it is the most secretive siloed organization that they have ever existed in. So how can we reconcile those two things? Because, and I think that's where we need to have specificity because I can tell you what my value is all day long until I'm blue in the face, but my values ultimately are what I live by. So as someone who is a leader, as someone who hires people, I want to make sure that I am providing my definition. It's not just a value on my website. What does this actually look like? What does it, how is it in practice? And even as a leader, one thing that I always did when I was interviewing candidates, I would encourage them to ask specific questions to people on the team. What's it like to work with me? How does this actually show up? Because this is how they could gain an understanding, both of the team function, the company culture, but also my like their what their experience as me as a leader was going to be. Because I could say, you know, I have direct discourse with you. And they might envision that to be very different than what it actually is. And that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, right? <laughs> um, so having, I think we also something that companies and HR can do is make sure that not everybody is going through career coaching and learning how to interview. And not one has, not everyone has interviewed for as many jobs as I have, having had so many jobs over the course of my career um, in order to learn those. Because I think also a lot of those questions that we get, especially as we get more experience in our career, come from falling into the ditches, Right. Like, I know that I've had this bad experience now, and I never would have known to ask this question. But now that I've had that bad experience, I know exactly what to look for, right? So this is something that I think we can, companies and HR can benefit their employees and their job candidates by providing more education on in the process, especially if they are saying that they're transparent, it increases transparency throughout the process. Yeah, what words would some communicate people on the interview? I know a couple of things that I look out for is are they only giving me a half hour? I know I always block out an hour anyway on yep. my time. Are they late? Um, do they even look at your resume, cover letter, or anything along those lines? No, they didn't. Yep. They're trying to look at that. They have these four questions they must ask. They don't give you time to ask questions at the at the end. And then I always look to see who's even on those panels. Like, I don't have anybody's on the peer, I don't have anything else. So you know, they want, you know, someone who's a chief in my case, but really it looks like they want, you know, maybe an analyst or an engineer. So what are the t- kind of things that you can advise people on when they're looking for that job? Because a lot of people are looking for jobs out there. Yeah. I'm being leery because you're probably going to be spinning out very quickly, if, even if you get yeah. that job. So I think one of the biggest flags kind of drawing from what you just said is to look at the dynamic in the interview process. Are they just interviewing them or do they expect you to interview them as well? Because if they are consuming all the time with questions that they have for you, 
that's a red flag because you're supposed to be figuring it out as well. It's not that you're just, you know, so desperate for any job and should like grovel on their feet upon their feet. Should you have the pleasure of receiving a job offer? <laughs> um, you need to be figuring it out as well, because while they know their company, you know, their your skills. So there needs to be mutual questioning. And if that's not being provided, that to me is a very big red flag. Um, I also think that the treatment that you receive, like, again, like you just mentioned, is going to be something is really something that can be a waving red flag or it can be a subtle red flag. I can tell you like a waving red flag story from when I first immigrated to New York. So even though I only immigrated from Canada, getting your first job when you immigrate to the U.S. is a thing. It's a way harder thing when you're not kind of American passing like I am until they looked at my my resume history and knew that I was on a work authorization and things like that. Um, but I was uh, I was in an advanced stage with a mid-sized startup here in New York City. It seemed really interesting. The role that they had was literally just created for me. Like I was the perfect person for it. I knew that they wouldn't be able to hire anyone better than me. So for the last stage of the interview, they had me come in to do a presentation, which I think everyone knows that these are very common, especially in client-facing roles. But what they did was they tried to disrupt me. So there was multiple people sitting in the room. So one person kept on interrupting. Some Another person was taking phone calls. Um, another person was eating. And, you know, there's where me and you were both facilitators. We know how we would deal with this if we were training a group of people. But when you're in an interview situation, this is a very different thing, right? So you're not going to respond as you would typically respond. You're probably just going to go with it. And in your head, you're freaking out. And at the end of this presentation, the lead interviewer was like, we, we did this to mess with you to see how you would respond. And I was like, do I just walk out right now? Like, do I? And I just, I didn't want to like burn a bridge because tech communities are smaller than we think they are. And so I ended up sitting in for the rest. And then they were like, well, the, our SVP is going to come in and talk to you now. And I was like, I was not expecting to meet the SVP today. So thanks for the warning. Can I escape? But anyway, he came in. But he talked to me, he talked at me, so definitely not giving me any opportunity to ask him questions, talked at me for a solid 15, 20 minutes about how if I should get this job offer, I would be so indebted to him that I would need to stay for at least five years for him to get an ROI. Again, bear in mind, this job description is written for me with my exact mm -hmm. experience, which was fairly niche. And then just like walked out of the room at the end. And I did end up getting a job offer, which was 50% of market value. <laughs> and they were shocked when I declined it. <laughs> so like things aren't always going to be that big. Sometimes they can be much subtler than that. But I think looking at the attitudes, the other thing that I always love, especially in those situations where there is multiple people in a room, which I think as an interviewee is stressful, but look at how people are interacting with each other. And what, even if you're just going on site for an interview, because I think for the most part, companies are back to on site interviewing at some stage of their process now. Um, show up a little bit early and just try to observe and try to eavesdrop how people are speaking with each other. If the office is dead silent, maybe that's not an environment you're going to dig. Maybe that's your perfect environment. I don't know. <laughs> but knowing what you're looking for and what environment suits you is going to also help you identify those subtle flags as well as the major flags in the interview process. Yeah, I know when I go on, on site for companies, a lot of times I forget 
I'm security, privacy, compliance, enterprise risk. So those times like that, I'm always looking at, you know, how they're protecting the perimeter inside, who's saying right. what, what papers are lying out. The other thing I noticed too, is just because you mentioned that if you have panel discussions, who are in those panels, and then are you making me sit in the lobby waiting an hour in between those panels? Yeah. Did you even offer me water? Did you offer me anything along those lines? How are you showing me as a value as a human? And it's that humanist that is being left out, I think, quite a bit along those lines. Absolutely. No. And I think the interview stage is really where they should be trying to impress you the most. They should be trying to woo you just as much, if not more, than you are trying to woo them. And I think that is easier as a job seeker to do two years ago when it was in most industries and most places, more of a candidate's market. It's a bit harder um, when it is more of an employer's market and there's, you know, some perceived instability and um, potential like scarcity that comes up, but knowing that the right opportunity is going to make itself available to you, that if you're in between jobs, it's not going to be forever. And that if the right opportunity, like if the opportunity that you're pursuing right now, isn't the right one for you, even if it's not obvious yet, something else is coming, something else is going to happen. Um, and trusting in yourself, because I think top talent is always marketable you're always going to get hired, right? Yeah, that's one thing too, when we you know talk back about red flags, I've had times where the interview process went very well, was able to ask questions, you know, all the good feel and all that stuff, ask us extra questions, all that other kind of stuff. And then as yeah. soon as I got boots on the ground, remember I have a military background, boots on the ground. Yeah. It was not that, it was, you know, the person who was singing and dancing with me was not the person that was in the company. The company was completely yeah. opposite on the inside. And yeah. I would tell you that every time I've had that red flag, it's never undone itself. Oh, absolutely. And I think like I've 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 been in a situation where the people doing the hiring and participating in hiring knew that they were selling a different expectation that what was going to happen. I have confronted people of saying like, why did you say that? That wasn't really true. And they're like, well, because no one would want to work here if they really knew. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, and I actually, I wanted to ask you about, because you've mentioned in that situation, making an exit and plotting that exit quickly. And this is something that a lot of people terrifies them. And I can't tell you how many people that I've spoken to that have had that bait and switch happen to them. And they end up like, well, I need to stay for at least 18 months. So I just need to put up with this for another 16 months. And it's like, there, the, nothing good is going to come from this. Your resume is not going to be like flawed forever <laughs> if you don't stay in a job for a set criteria of time. Will it bother some recruiters or companies? Potentially, sure, but those are not going to be your companies because I think that good leaders and good companies know that when you're in the right spot and you have the ability to identify that and do something about that, that's a great skill to have because that means that you're proactive, that you're not going to settle and you're going to bring that same energy into that company. Not that you're going to jump qu ship quickly, but when you see a problem, when you see an issue, you're going to be a proactive problem solver. And I think that that's a huge asset as a candidate. It too. I think people have asked me that and I mentor people and they said, I only, I only stayed there, you know, six weeks or two months. It was getting progressively worse. Mm -hmm. Should you put that in resume? You don't have to put that on a resume. 
Nope. You don't. That's part of your consulting gigs or stuff like that. I would tell you behind the scenes when I talk to top CISOs and, and CIOs who are security men, we all have at least one nightmare, if not more, yeah. in our background. Yeah. So we understand. And I will always bring up someone higher that they realize that that was taking away their resiliency that was allowed them to be their full person. Yeah. And they took that lesson learned. I will always hire that person over someone who's like, I just gritted it out for five years. I don't want you to grit it out for five years. I right. want, I don't want fear, uncertainty, and doubt on my team. I want you to feel yeah. comfortable and I want to yeah. enable you to do the best work you possibly can. At yeah. times, you're always going to be uncomfortable with work because we all get stretched and grow. 100%. But I never want you to be, I had to go to work every day to be less than myself, my authentic self, and inside crippling just yeah. to wait it out for 18 months. I would never tell anybody to do that. Absolutely. Don't do no, that. You 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 cannot prioritize your resume over your mental health and well-being because the cost to your resume is going to be much less than being in an awful toxic environment for 18 months, two years, five years, whatever number you think is in your head that it's acceptable before you leave. You have to prioritize yourself in that situation because the only thing that's going to happen when you remain, not only will you experience stress, trauma, unnecessary drama that none of us need in our lives, there's also a risk that you're going to experience skill atrophy because maybe you're not you're going to be under leveraged. Um, you might be so over leveraged that you end up completely burning out and then not having a chance but to take a career break, which is a situation that I have worked with many people that have ended up being forced into career breaks they didn't plan for because things got so bad. Um, but also over the, the course of those 18 months or whatever number, again, I pick 18 months because it's what I hear most frequently. Um, what opportunities are you missing in those 18 months? You know, opportunities to be in a great company, opportunities to have challenging work that is helping you progress in your career, opportunities to be recognized in your career, and to do really good work that is valued and appreciated so that at the end of the day, most days, like I don't think anyone likes their job every single day. I love my career. I don't wake up every single day like, yes, I'm so excited to work. Like that's not sustainable. That's not an ideal that we can actually experience in real life, in my opinion. But to not wake up every day like, oh, I don't want to do this and to have like, you know, severe like stress and anxiety every Sunday, knowing that you have to do this again for another week. Like there's so much cost to staying that making the decision to leave, there's so much upside on the other side of that decision. You know, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So definitely put yourself first today. Yeah. With that, our time has totally flown by. So Jennifer, how can people reach out to you for speaking engagements, coaching, professional services along those lines? What's the best way to get a hold of you for those type of things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best hub where you can find links to everything. So if you're interested in um, attending a training or hiring me to speak or just getting links to all my socials, they're all on my website, which is capdecasolutions.com. Or if you just want to hear more of my rantings, go to YouTube, search Jennifer Brick, and I'm going to pop right up. Great. With Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show today. You are a soulful CXO. Thank you for having me.